Welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality with Sydney DeLorean. That's me. And guess what? I have a guest today. Uh, returning guest, Casey. How's it going? Excellent. It's been a while. How are you? I know. Last time we talked was pre-pandemic, I believe, right? Yes. Yep. I, I think what we talked about was Salem, right? Is that what it was? Yes, we talked about the Salem witch trials, and I remember we also did an episode on doppelgangers. Oh, shit. That was so long ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, everyone go back and listen to those because that was so long ago, I forgot that it happened. Yeah, it honestly um, feels like eras ago. It, yeah. Um so we are recording today, and actually, I didn't even think about it, but this is such good timing because it's Hallow Week. Um, but <laughs> you, since the last time I talked to you, you started going to school for mortuary science. Yes. So usually the mortuary science program, at least for New York State, is about two years. It's an associate's program. But... Having gotten my bachelor's in gerontology, I was able to cut that school time in half. So I got admitted in the fall, and I should be set to graduate by this upcoming summer. Holy moly. So your bachelor's is in gerontology. Uh, <laughs> what is that? That is the study of the elderly. So honestly, a lot of the subject matter was... Um, kind of in the same realm as death and dying, only now um, learning to deal with death after the fact. Okay, that is so interesting. So I didn't even know that um, that was your first degree. So before I even get into mortuary science, where did the, the interest in the elderly come from? Um, it was kind of a combination of... Um, my grandma was starting to age and I was taking care of her at the time. I realized that I could relate to the elderly in a lot of ways. Like I enjoy the same kind of music and I like collecting antiques and I just really wanted to hear all their stories. Like I wanted to um, be like a good figure of compassion for them. So I wasn't really mm -hmm. a nursing. I was considering being a caseworker for a little bit. Okay. But when said grandma um, passed away, I handled her funeral arrangements. And that's kind of what inspired me to go into the field. Because for some time I'd been dabbling with the idea, but handling her final arrangements kind of gave me that push to go back. Uh, that's very cool. As someone who grew up hanging out at senior living facilities, because... My mom, um, for a huge chunk of her nursing career, was in geriatrics, and so she managed a couple assisted living facilities, and it was one of those things where I would get dropped off after school, and I would hang out there until she was done with work, um, yeah. or sometimes I would go thrift shopping with the old ladies, or I'd go to their <laughs> movie nights. And so I just like, I kind of grew up, my coworkers make fun of me because like all oh. the really old customers, like those are my people 
Or when I moved to New York, my uh, friend was like, how do you know every old person on the block and like what wine they drink, but you haven't made any friends your own age? I'm like, I don't know. I think it's just that I grew up in that environment that I didn't have friends at school, but I had, you know, I had my friends at the assisted living facility. Um, So that's very cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so handling your grandmother's arrangement you got to see kind of what the industry is like because a lot of people myself included I haven't lost a loved one like a close one where I've been responsible for the arrangements Mm -hmm. so I think that's people don't know what that process is like I think they know about embalming but they don't know that when you are a funeral director there's a lot involved that isn't just how you handle the body Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, um, the funeral industry is a very detail oriented field. We have to know, or we have to gather information on everything from the person's social security number to do they want burial or cremation or even both, which I'll get into in a little bit. Um, and even just to family members, the smallest things can make all the difference. Um, so as part of your, uh, graduation and I guess licensure, Mm -hmm. you're expected to do it all. It's not divvied up. Like (laughs) you need to know about the legal processing of the body as well as the physical processing. And you need to know about, I don't know, casket selection. Like that's the impression that I get is that funeral directors, have to know how to do everything. It's not, the work isn't like divvied up. You're pretty much right on the money with that because um, a lot of, um, you know, mortuary science school classes range from biohazards and pathogens because we get lots of exposure to that, to bereavement counseling, to, um, I'm currently taking mortuary compliance, which is about following all the, legal guidelines of the funeral industry, especially as they vary from state to state. So yes, we definitely have to cover a lot of ground. And for funeral directors in New York State, we have to take continuing education and we have to renew our license every two years. Um, So after we complete the associate's degree, We get a lot of that experience, and like you said, it really runs the gamut from um, going on removals to sitting in on embalmings to even just sitting in on arrangement meetings. And after we complete our associate's degree, we have to do our residency, which is basically like a year-long paid internship with the funeral home. And... um, it's an on-call basis. You could be called in the middle of the night or early in the morning before your shift at the funeral home starts. Um, for New York, I got I found a funeral home and I was lucky for it to pretty much fall into my lap where they wanted to hire me and then we um, collaborated with the school to make sure I was meeting all my credit requirements. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. So... Um, theoretically, you'll do your residency and then you're hoping to work for that funeral home or continue working for them after the residency period? 
yeah, continue working for them. Um, I got the job in, I want to say, May, and I actually moved about 45 minutes out, and I got my first official own place because the funeral home was maybe about 45 minutes away from um, where I grew up. So I, after a while, I was like, okay, I can't keep making the hop and skip out here every day. <laughs> Yeah, especially when you're on call in the middle of the night. Right. Um, oh my gosh, I had a I had a burning question that just kind of fluttered away in my mind. <laughs> um, so, when you do, do you do you is the term mortician is that the term that we use? Um. So. The terms are honestly interchangeable. I hear some people use the word mortician. I hear some use undertaker, which sounds pretty badass, except I feel like it makes me sound like the wrestler. <laughs> um, I, uh, <laughs> we usually just like to use the word funeral director because, um, okay. you know, I've also heard people just use the word embalmer, but really funeral directing is about so much more than just embalming. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, I think that people think of um, morticians as just dealing with the body. And I've known people in my life who've been interested in it. And then when they find out like, oh, it isn't just embalming and doing makeup. I have to be this person that the family can count on and rely on. And I'm there for the worst part of their life. And they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Right. That's so much work. <laughs> yep. Um Oh, I know what my question was. How big is your, like, so your program right now, mm -hmm. how many people uh, about are in your program? I like how many want, classmates, I guess? I want to say maybe over a thousand. So it's, um, it's a pretty good size. Um, but Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. And um, probably the best part is that um, most of the incoming field is women. Um, over 70% of incoming students, I believe, are women. That's actually makes sense to me, just to gender stereotype, that women tend to be caretakers and empathetic. And the, the field of nursing is dominated by women. So it would make sense that this field should have a lot of women, although I know that is historically not true. Um, and maybe they thought dealing with death would uh, hurt, you know, women's genteel nature or something. <laughs> I don't know. But a thousand students, that is a big, um, I was picturing there's a mortuary science program at um, Mesa Community College out here. And I think that there, it's like less than half that. So that's actually really exciting. Um, because I assume, is it a field of work that there's always, they, they always need workers, I would assume. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and there is an ongoing debate kind of about how the field is currently threatened because um, a lot of women are coming out, but at the same, by the same token, um, sexism and unequal pay are driving them back out. But um, just oh. kind of going back to what you said earlier, you're absolutely right about um, history, but that's kind of fluctuated for a bit because um, it, I uh, took a class last semester about funeral service industry, and for a while, a lot of death care workers were women, and then for whatever reason, um, along the lines, people decided we were too pure for all some of the more grotesque parts of the job. Um, 
I am happy to see a lot of, excuse me, women coming into the field, but that also doesn't mean I haven't already dealt with uh, my fair share of sexism. Um, <laughs> I, um, I can remember this one day I went to take a casket out of the vault and, and I was like, it's not like I've never helped handle a casket before. Like I've carried them before, but the grounds worker said, oh, what is she going to do? Get right over here, sweetie. Stand here and make sure none of us drop this. And at the time I was just like, okay, I need to know when to pick my battles. <laughs> yeah. Cause he assumed that you couldn't do it physically. Yeah. They, they were like, oh, she's going to get hurt trying to help us carry this thing. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, you know what? I guess sometimes you just got to let people do that for you. Because um, I, I deal with it with uh, changing kegs. Um, and, you know, it's like, oh I, oh, I got it. And it's like, well, number one, <laughs> I'm capable of doing it. Number two, I'm more spry than you, which means I can deal <laughs> with climbing over kegs to get to other things. But... Um, so let's talk a little bit about the history of funeral services, because for a long time, weren't they, it was kind of a, like a family run thing and the funeral home was actually someone's home. Like the family lived in it and then the embalming took place in the basement. Am I incorrect on this? Nope. That is absolutely right. Um, urbanization and the introduction of technology changed that. Um, you know, it became less about, it became less family oriented and then eventually professionals sort of stepped in and they left um, or they took over the business and were kind of like, here, let us handle this stuff behind closed doors rather than letting the family do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And which is interesting because I have had people ask me, could you ever embalm a loved one? And to be honest, I'm not sure that I could. Um, I might be able to do some parts of the job, like washing their hair or doing their makeup, but I'm not sure I could do um, like injection and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Cremation had... Um, Cremation has actually been around for a while now. There were what we would call pyres, like funeral pyres. They were stacks of wood on top of which the decedent's body would be placed. And um, it, I was actually just doing a paper and it became less popular um, when religion came into the picture because some religions see the body as a temple. So um, I can understand how they would have seen the burning of a body to be sacrilege, and it wasn't popular in the 60s, but nowadays it's um, actually surpassed burial in terms of popularity. Yeah, I, I'll never forget, and this is well over a decade ago, uh, a friend of mine passed away, and oh, she was morbidly, well, you know, people be dying, yeah. um, but she was morbidly obese. And my mom was like, I hate to say it. Like, I, I don't feel uncomfortable asking this, but she's like, did they get a coffin for her? Just because she would have needed a specialty coffin. And yeah. I said, no, she was cremated. And my mom goes, yeah, I guess getting embalmed and buried is kind of out of style. <laughs> and I just love that that's how my mom described. She's like, yeah. And then she's like, I can't think of the last person I know. I can, like, I know who was buried. She's like, everyone's embalmed these days. That seems <laughs> to be the, 
more of the trend, but because people don't visit, um, I don't know, as far as I know, people don't visit graveyards like they used to, like, because we used to do that growing up, like, you would go on road trips to see family, and you would plot your course to stop by cemeteries to visit grandma and grandpa, and right. great grandma and grandpa, and, like, I really don't know if people visit graves that way anymore I could be wrong but I don't have a lot of friends so what do I know um <laughs> what what's the impression you so you said the majority is cremated now yes that's the more popular yeah and um I actually know um well so I've been doing a research paper this semester um on unclaimed cremated remains which can be pretty fucked up because it's pretty sad to imagine someone's creamings just sitting there and no one coming to pick them up. And, Mm -hmm. but I can see why cremation has become more popular because it allows people the option of having their loved one in a tangible way rather than going to a gravesite and kind of just sitting in the grass with them being six feet under. Um, With cremation, Mm -hmm. you can have... Um, jewelry, you know, you can put your loved one in a necklace. I've heard of some people having custom-made paintings, I believe. The ashes are mixed into the paint, and they do, like, a custom portrait. There's just a wide array of options that you don't really get with burial. Well, yeah, and I guess, like, so I'm from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the op, and I don't live there anymore, so I don't have the option of visiting loved ones. So I can right. see, you know, with cremation, you have portable remains, um, and so you get to I get to take the loved one with you. Um, why do Why do people choose one or the other? Like, why do people choose embalming? Um. Well, actually, this was another thing I meant to cover earlier um, because I think I made a comment addressing it. Um, And (laughs) this is so stupid, but for whatever reason, before I joined the industry, I had thought that embalming and viewings or cremation were mutually exclusive. Like, I just thought you could have one or the other. Um, And like I said, I I know that sounds stupid, but um, I... It was only recently that I found out like, oh, people can still have a viewing if they want and then they can be cremated later on. But um, oh, I mean, why not? I guess. But yeah, you don't think about that. Yeah. Um, I know. Like I said earlier, a lot of people are against um, those who are against cremation are usually against it for religious reasons like they the idea of them, their body on fire is horrific to them, especially since Christianity. It's like desecration. Yeah, or, you know, how Christianity sees um, hell as like a fiery um, <laughs> inferno. So to them, that's... Oh. Um, otherwise, though, people might just have family plots and it's just as simple as wanting to be buried with their family. Though you can mm-hmm. also technically have that by being cremated still you can just have your ashes placed in an urn and then the urn can be buried in the ground with the family that makes sense and so when here we'll get into the nitty-gritty yeah so if you were to have someone on display 
I'm going to use a lot of weird sayings because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking <laughs> no, it's about. Okay. If, you were to, if you were to have a viewing, obviously you embalm them right before the viewing so that they're not um, decaying. Right. And then you burn them to cremate them. Um, I guess I'm, what sort of like, are we worried about gases? Like how do they handle the processing of um, when the fumes, like the, the smoke from the fire when, cause I know crematoriums, they have like the chimneys that come out of them, but mm -hmm. like, is it dangerous to have, um, cremated or um, embalming fluid burning? Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, cause I, I don't even know what embalming fluid is. I just know it seems like toxic. No, I completely get that. Um, no, it's not dangerous. Usually the procedure is, um, so say after a viewing, we um, usually, well, in my case, so we have these person-sized cardboard boxes in the garage, and they usually have a nice emblem on them, so it's not like we're just putting them in a cardboard box. <laughs> um, um, but so after the service, we would take the casket out to the garage later that evening, um, put them in the box, make sure that all jewelry was removed. Um, so you don't really have to worry about embalming fluid, but you definitely want to take out any jewelry or pacemakers, which... Um, pacemakers? <laughs> yes. Because um, those could definitely, the batteries could explode and that would not be fun oh. for anybody. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Yep. So is that something you are learning to do or have learned to do in school is remove pacemakers? Yep. I've already done that a couple times and... Oh, wow. It's definitely one of those things where... Um, and, you know, I know there's a time and a place for everything. Obviously, I would never say this in front of families and such, but it's one of those instances where I have to cope with humor um, or yeah. just kind of otherwise distance myself because otherwise it just feels crazy. Like I'm cutting a per I'm pretty much cutting a person. Um, most of the time when I'm embalming or taking out a pacemaker, I try to think of it as like performing surgery on them. Um, so, I mean, it is, it is you're right. doing heart surgery and then you, the pacemaker goes in like a biohazard disposal, I guess. Yes. We, um, so we have a biohazard bin in the garage and actually I have a crazy story that just happened to me maybe like a couple weeks ago. Um, this one woman had a pacemaker in her, so we, I was getting ready to send her to the crematory. So, I had to cut the pacemaker out and finding it is pretty easy. I mean, it's very obnoxious almost <laughs> like you can immediately see where it is. So it's basically just carefully cutting the skin until and cutting around it until I can take the pacemaker out. But so as soon as I took it out, you know, I put it in the biohazard bin. I put the lid on the box and start writing her name. You know, we label all the boxes. And so I'm getting ready to close up shop in the garage, you know, cleaning up, shutting the lights off. And all of a sudden I hear this horrendous noise and I realized it was the, pa <gasps> the pacemaker I had just cut out. It had like turned on? 
Yeah, and it was just beeping, and I've never seen anything like that or heard of anything like that happening. Oh, my and, God. Oh, I, I was skeeved out. I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's definitely been one of my um, creepier moments over there. Yeah, that is so creepy. And by the way, if this cuts us off, just don't stop the recording on your computer. Okay. And then I'll just call you back and we'll... And that way, it's just one long recording file and I'll edit the stopping out because I think it's going to cut us off um, Yeah. shortly. So I, is when you... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. I am set the meeting for two hours, like just to give it some leeway, but I don't know why um, it's telling me that it might cut us off for free time anyway, but oh well. All um, right. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Because yeah, um, cause, yeah so I know sometimes they have limits. Um, so when you receive a body, where do you get the medical history to know what you need to take out? Do you just rely on oral history from the family? Um, it depends on where we get the body from. Um, if we get it from the medical examiner, um, they'll give us the rundown. If And usually the family will as well. They'll just kind of give us a history of their health or illnesses or anything else we might need to know. And for nursing homes and hospital facilities, usually they give us a face sheet, which is pretty much all their information of why they were there in the first place. So that would have you knowing, okay, there's a pacemaker. Mm -hmm. um, what else would you need to know about? Artificial joints, are those okay to be cremated? You know, that's actually a really great, great question because I think I've asked about implants before and I believe um, I actually haven't given that a lot of thought. Luckily, we get mostly elderly people, mm -hmm. but there have been times where I had to worry about, does this person have a scrotal piercing or something like that? Because, <laughs> um, I mean, if they have their tongue pierced, then yes, we do have to take that out. Um, okay. Yeah, because I would assume if they had like a fake uh, a hip replacement or something, that might be a problem. I don't know. I wonder if the hospital might take care of that for us because there's all we also get tissue donors. So before we take yeah. them into our care, um, they've already, I don't want to say harvested, but I can't think of a better word right now. Um, they've already taken whatever organs need to go, um, which is neat to know because I'm actually, I signed myself up to be an organ donor a couple weeks weeks uh, years ago I I'll never forget because I'm an organ donor who gives a fuck right like if I'm, yeah. I'm not using it let someone else use it right um but I I had a friend who I'm elderly so this was almost 20 years ago but she told me <laughs> she would never be an organ donor because her dad was a cop and he told her how um what did he say how savage it was when they would like you know, cut open bodies to remove the organs for donation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was like, uh, yeah, have you ever seen surgery on live patients? It still is savage. Like, you know what I mean? Because I just Absolutely. remember when I first got cable, there was like a channel called the surgery channel. And if you, especially um, 
anything where they're using a bone saw or they're oh removing God. organs, like on living patients, I'm like, it's not any more savage <sighs> for them to be doing that to a deceased body than they do it to living bodies. It's just, if you are not in a medical field, like her dad was a cop. So he apparently thought it was so savage, the removing of organs for donation. And I'm like, yeah, but like, if you have to have like your gallbladder taken out, it's going to look the exact same on you <laughs> than it, it would on a deceased person. It just seems so silly to me. Um, and yeah, what sort of sanctity are you trying to preserve? Like if you're giving away your, um, what is it that they take off the eyeballs, the cornea? Like yeah. if you're, if they're taking your cornea, they're taking your cornea. Like it's, who cares? I don't know. It's so weird to me. Well, I'm actually really glad you bring that up because when I get especially really gnarly cases, usually autopsies especially are, can be, they can get ugly. But in cases like that where it's really stomach churning, I do my best to remind myself I really am doing something beautiful for both this person and for their family. Like I'm making them look presentable, even if this is really gross right now. Um, I do remember the one time we did have a tissue donor. Um, they're pretty rare, but we had to embalm him. And I have not seen anything like that since. Um, so he came in a body bag and I remember I opened the zipper and I see a shimmer and I realized that the body bag was just, he was just submerged in his own blood. And we were just like, holy shit. Well, how do we, um, so my professor and I ended up grabbing the biohazard bin and just man gingerly maneuvering him out of the bag and then putting the entire biohazard bag in the, um, or I'm sorry, putting the entire body bag in the biohazard bag because it was just full. It was straight out of a horror film. So when you say tissue donor, that means his skin? Yes. Um, so, so, so he was, what do, they, what do they call it when your skin is removed? Um, he was that? Yeah. Yes. And he was a bigger guy. So when we were handling him, it was slippery because it was mostly just a lot of adipose tissue. Or, mm. So um, he, I remember he had donated the bottom part of his stomach like kind of around the waist area and his thighs so all the skin around that area had been taken off and I remember we had to wrap him because we were still putting him in a casket so we had to make sure none of that was leaking so what do you wrap him in saran wrap <laughs> so um we have <laughs> <laughs> we have what we call coveralls or Unionals, they're pretty much like plastic garments. So we, I mean, we do kind of have a saran wrap for dead bodies, yes. So um, <laughs> I think we used that. Um, we very tightly wrapped it after putting garments on him. And I think we also added a solution to help preserve it, if you will. Um, just so no one could mm -hmm. smell it because it's also recently that I realized um, adipose tissue does have a distinctive smell to it. I can't describe it, but it always grosses me out so badly. 
Really? Does it smell similar to um, meat? Like if you have a fatty cut of meat? No. It's, um, or is it distinctly different? It's not that strong, um, but it is like noticeable. Um, yeah. It's just one of those things where you, even if you've experienced it firsthand, you can't accurately describe it to somebody unless they've also um, experienced it. So as a bartender, um, there is this liquor called Malort, and much like you can't describe the smell of adipose tissue, mm -hmm. you can't really describe the taste of Malort until you've tasted Malort. So I guess it's like one of those things where the insiders, they know, but outsiders, it's like, well, hopefully, you know, you never have to find out yeah. um, or be surprised. <laughs> I've actually never heard of that. Is it like a vodka uh, or... It is a, I believe it's technically a liqueur. It's a wormwood liqueur. It's really big in Chicago where it's made. It was like a prohibition era invention. Um, but their recent marketing campaign is your pants aren't going to shit themselves. <laughs> so if that, <laughs> if that says anything to you about um, the taste, uh, oh like I have gosh. one customer who proudly is like I like it but he's also had sex with over 3,000 men and so I'm always like well you eat ass so like it's different for you to say that you like the taste of it than for like just a normal person like you've eaten so much ass so of course you like the Lord um but that's not everybody's cup of tea um so let's talk to people about embalming I loosely know a little bit about embalming i read mary roach's book stiff that is an excellent years book. ago uh yeah everyone read that book she's such a great um writer she writes science in a way that layman can understand um so i read that a million years ago and then and i know this will get touchy i read an article by somebody in the funeral industry who is a necrophiliac and they were writing about how it gets covered up and so they were it was a woman and her thing was she just liked to like grind on like just grind on the bodies like not oh. insertion or anything she would grind on them and she said you know funeral homes they will oftentimes if they catch it they will just quietly let you go and transfer you so you don't ruin the reputation of the funeral home kind of like how police departments will just like transfer a cop out because right it would be leave. bad for them to yeah or yeah it, it would be bad for them to say oh yeah we have someone who's practicing abuse of power or whatever it would ruin their reputation so they just which, which is a problem, I think. It's what the Catholic Church does. And it's, you know, it's, it's a shame that in these bureaucracies and stuff that rather than be rewarded for calling out bad actors, it actually behooves them to brush it under the rug. But um, she was saying, you know, she had a coworker at a funeral home who got off on replacing the embalming fluid with urine. Holy and so she, shit. I know, right? And so she knew what he was up to and he knew what she was up to. And so they kind of had this silent agreement that like, we're not going to rat each other out, 
which is so horrific. And I think that's everyone's worst nightmare um, is having, you know, their body, uh, I don't know, desecrated like or that. mishandled, desecrated. Yeah. Um, and so I, all I know about embalming fluid is that they, what it, it's kind of like an IV, right? And you replace the blood in the body or the natural fluids with something that makes it not decay. Yeah, I mean, so something I, um, and it's not that I really, it's not that I didn't know this necessarily, but learning about it really gave me a lot of perspective. So I, uh, if someone was embalmed and they were buried and 40 years later you dug them up, <laughs> um, embalming, you probably couldn't tell they had been embalmed because embalming just, um, delays the decomposition process but it doesn't really stop it um it's mostly for... it just keeps them from stinking at the funeral right right is that yeah that's awful to say <laughs> yep. that but it keeps it you can preserve it long enough that people can view the body and say farewell um and it's not gross or stinky yep that way they're not um smelling like rot they're not um green or they're eyes aren't crawling full of worms, stuff like that. Um, so, (laughs) so, um, in most states, embalming is not required by law. And I was actually pretty surprised to figure that out. But like we were just saying, it is strongly recommended for anybody who's having a viewing. But so most states do require that people are either embalmed or refrigerated within 24 hours. So if the family is still deciding, like, do we want to have a viewing or do we just want to have a cremation, simple, uh, straightforward um, disposition, no ceremonies? Um, Like if families are still trying to decide, we'll put them in the cooler for a little bit. Um, But yes, so... The embalming process um, starts the minute we transfer someone onto the embalming table, which has like a little hole at the end of it so that all fluids, any blood or anything else um, pretty much um, goes through and down the drain. And so we usually like to use the right common carotid right side of the body. Um, We make a little incision there and we find the vein and the artery. And everyone is built a little bit differently, so it's not always going to be in the same spot for everybody. And sometimes it has taken me a while to find the vein and the artery. But so once you can see them, you use your tools and some ligatures to... um, to kind of tie them off so that you can work with them more easily and you can see what you're doing. Um, Once you have them tied off, you cut the veins so that the blood can drain. And you also make a little incision in the artery so that way we can inject. And we do that using an instrument called a cannula, which is hooked up to the embalming machine. Um, The cannula, You know, we mix fluids ahead of time, um, and it also depends on the state of the person, um, like things like how long have they have been dead, their, even their weight, or 
decomposition can all affect what you pick for embalming chemicals, and we have different kinds. Um, for people who have been dead for a little bit, we like to use higher index chemicals, so that way it's really strong. Or if we have to keep them for a little bit, like if their services aren't for another week or two, then we really want to pump them full of chemicals. And in that week or two, do they, while they're waiting for their service, are they also refrigerated? Yes. How does it work? Okay. Yep. Um, as soon as they are embalmed, we put them in the cooler. And then is it like the day before the funeral, then you do hair and makeup? Yeah, usually the day before the funeral is a pretty good time frame. Um, we'll take them out, and that way we can also let them cool off, if you will. Um, yeah. And mop up any moisture that might have accumulated from them being in the cooler, which will also usually take protective measures so that the moisture doesn't accelerate the decomposition. So we'll take them out, we'll um, let them thaw for a little bit, um, and... Also, putting on makeup or putting makeup on a dead person is a hell of a lot different than putting it on a live person. Um, it almost, especially if they've been embalmed, it doesn't even feel like flesh anymore. It kind of feels like I'm painting a rock. Really? So the embalming fluid makes them feel more firm than they would have in life? Yes. Really? Yep. They, um... Interesting. And I feel like also that can, or that personally helps me with distancing techniques a little bit because um, it feels less like a person to me than, mm -hmm. it almost feels like I'm working on a mannequin or something like that. Yeah, I can see that. If it doesn't feel like a person, it's less intimate, I guess. Um, and I assume that it's it's different makeup products. You're not using Revlon. They probably need like a firmer <laughs> foundation. I mean, we can use some, but um, but yeah, we do need um, like different makeups with different chemical makeup, so to speak. Um, I uh, I like to think I've already gotten pretty good at putting on makeup. I when I first started training to do that. I, and I still um, work hard to not cake it on, which can be hard, especially if they've been dead for quite some time, because they might need a little bit of cover up. But I still try not to make them look orange or like they're in clown makeup because I. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you want them to look like themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. My grandparents like to talk to me about. Um, my field of work and they always joke about when they go to a wake and people are like oh they look so good and my grandparents are like no they look dead <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I can I can understand how traumatic it would be for a family member to go up to the casket and see their loved one not looking like their loved one at all so I um, we, we usually ask for a picture so that way we can try to live up to that as best as possible it is a lot of pressure. It's kind of like if you're just doing someone's hair because they're getting their hair done, it's one thing. If you're doing their hair the day of their wedding, that they're going to look at these pictures for the rest of their life. Or like, yeah, I mean, just hair and makeup for a wedding, it's more pressure than an average day. And mm -hmm. it's 
a lot of pressure because this is going to be the family's number one. They're, you don't want to disturb them. And number two, they're going to remember this. Um, so yeah, I would feel, it would feel a lot of pressure <laughs> that in that regard. Yeah. And it definitely doesn't help my perfectionist tendencies either. Sometimes I'll be, um, usually I can put makeup on within about 20 minutes, but if, if I feel, uh, self-conscious enough, I'll be in there for more like 45 minutes. But, um, I, uh, I've heard of, I've heard some people refer to a wake or a viewing as giving the family a memory picture, which I really like. It's mm-hmm. kind of like that last look. And even though they might not necessarily want to remember their loved one that way, it's still also kind of like a form of closure, very bittersweet closure. It's like, okay, they really are dead and they're not coming back. But at least they're wearing their favorite dress and their hair looks good. Um, yeah, and then you think, okay, they would have been happy with this. Yeah. Like, you want, would the deceased be happy with this? Yeah. Um, and also, I, I think that's kind of lovely just because um, funerals, albeit it's sad you're saying goodbye to someone, but especially, like, family funerals, they are, I don't want to say good memories, but, like, for me, and it's been a long time since I've been to one, because um, I don't have a big family, but, like, everyone gets together, so it is family time, and you're not just, you're sharing memories, which is what families do at holidays, right? Mm-hmm. You get around the table and you all tell stories and you laugh about like, oh my God, can you believe the one time she did this or whatever? <laughs> and like funerals kind of are like that. Like they just, it's a little family reunion. Everyone gets together. They tell stories. You laugh, you cry. Like it's it's not entirely like, a ba- like an all bad thing. You know what I mean? It's not a hundred percent bummer event. There's There is, I think, joy to be found in that. Um, because there's like joy to be found in family connections. So a funeral in a way is a celebration of that. I don't know. I've only, I've, you know, I've been to less than probably 10 funerals (laughs) in my life. So what do I know? But like, I don't have horrific memories of them. I I have kind of fond memories of them. No, you're absolutely right. I've actually seen something becoming more popular as of late. And Um, families might call them celebration of life ceremonies. So Mm -hmm. in those cases, there usually isn't a viewing. I mean, there can be, but it's mostly focused on celebrating the person they were and the relationships they had. And um, obviously I don't want this for a very long time, but I have had, I have sets of family members. Should anything happen to me, I want a celebration of life ceremony with like, a buffet set up with all my favorite foods, like a playlist of songs I liked. Um, feel free to tell funny stories, even if I would be embarrassed, <laughs> probably. Um, yeah. I, uh, I've seen a lot more of those lately, and I really like them. I think, yeah, it it helps enforce the fact that it's not this somber thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just... I think you have to, I'm sure when you're deal, like dealing with your family, the families, you, what is their vision? And I'm, some people have it all planned out before they pass away. Like they've got all, so their family doesn't have to make those decisions. But a lot of times, like, I guess families are surprised. And so it's like, they're like, I don't know, what are we doing? Are we, are we cremating? Are we embalming? Are we 
having uh, like a view, like what, you know what I mean? So how do you walk people through that? Like, what is your vision? Cause it's kind of like a wedding planner. That's what wedding planners do. Like, what is your vision for your wedding? Um, well actually, so, um, I'm really glad you said that because sometimes people will have an advanced contract with a funeral home and the funeral home will also link up with the bank and relay any pertinent information. And we call those pre-need contracts. And that's exactly what you said. It's someone making arrangements for themselves so that the family doesn't, you know, you figure they're already very fragile. So it's very trying to then have to make those decisions. But so people will meet with a funeral director and they'll say, I want to be cremated or I want this color casket. I, um, my daughter gets this, my son gets that. Um, I want the song played. I, uh, I want to be embalmed or I don't want to be embalmed. Um, they're, they're pretty great. Um, and I think it's interesting. Like I know some people who will go, Oh, that's so morbid. Like when, like, cause my mom, I think she did all her stuff, you know, mm-hmm. but like she has a friend who's like, when she was going to go set all that arrangements, cause my mom's like, she's old, but she ain't sick, but like, you know, life happens. Right. And her friend was like, that's so morbid that you're doing that. And I think probably a lifetime in nursing has given her a more uh, realistic look out on death. Like it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So let's just handle it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, that's, I think that's probably the worst thing is like, Oh, you avoid, pre-arranging things because you don't want to think about it but then you just kind of leave it to your family and uh there's a lot of uh, sometimes families they get real ugly after death and there's infighting and all that and it's so rough um and I'm sure you get to see some a little like glimpses of that oh yeah um when I was doing my research earlier I saw that New York State funeral funeral directors um legally have to be physically present as supervisors for visitations and services. And my one thought was, why isn't this a thing for every state? It it just kind of seems like a no-brainer that they should be there as sort of like uh, to oversee everything, make sure it goes smoothly, and to be a mediator if necessary. But I definitely get the idea behind it because grief does make people do crazy things. So legally in New York state, you have to, what, what did you say? Like you have to be there during all viewing hours, um, during the funeral. Is that what you said? Yep. We have to have staff and super, um, and the funeral director, uh, supervising. And, um, so for burials specifically, um, and I've already done this a couple of times, I have to stay there until, the vault lid is put on. Even if the family has already left, I have to make sure the vault lid is put on. Um, I mean, that kind of makes sense just to make sure everything, it's a chain of custody right. thing at that point. Everything happened as it was supposed to happen and they are where we're telling them, the, telling the family they are. Like this is, it all happened and they are in their in the correct plot. Yeah, it just made me wonder why um, it was specific to just New York State. I was like, why isn't this a thing everywhere? 
Well, there's like a movement, and I only know about it from Caitlin Doty, the Ask a Mortician on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Um, there is a movement where like people want to, how would she say this? It's been a long time since I listened to her speak about it, but like almost like democratize death. Like she believes that families should be able to like, deal with the handling of the body themselves if they want to mm -hmm. which is very interesting um because it does i mean it leaves a lot of room for errors and i don't know um i think for the most part in our society people don't want wouldn't want to deal with the loved one's body so it's right. not going to become a big thing but right. you know she talks about historically you would wash and bathe your relative and you would bury them and whatever um uh, and so she's a she's an advocate of that have you heard of this I have not um and that's a really interesting thought but like you said I feel like a lot could go wrong not just with error but also in more cases than not family members usually won't agree on all of the nuances of the Mm -hmm. Funeral, like, no, they should be cremated. No, they should be buried. So I feel like that's kind of asking for trouble because emotions are already very high. Well, and just uh, for safety reasons, to be honest, yeah. if you're not an expert in a field and then you are trying to, like, prepare a body and have an in-home viewing and, like, decay is going to start and, like, mm -hmm. it's just, it's it's asking for trouble because it's, I'm very much like you just outsource to an expert. I'm blonde. I do not bleach my own hair <laughs> because that's asking for bald spots. Like, right. every single time I've been hit by a drunk driver, I just call a lawyer because I am not an expert at the ins and outs of that industry. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm very much, I love being able to defer to an expert. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I do understand that not everyone likes that. They like to feel like, oh, we can handle this or maybe even for financial reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, because what, okay, here's a question. Okay. Those people who have signs like you're raising money, they're doing a car wash for a loved one's burial. And usually it's a it's a young person who wouldn't have had life insurance or whatever. Mm -hmm. If someone, if someone passes away without life insurance, um, the family has to pay for dealing with the remains, right? Um, it's, or is there governmental agencies who are like, no, we'll, we'll help pay for cremation so you, you can get your loved one taken care of? Um, so in cases like that, um, Department of Social Services can help. And so families would have to, like, for example, if someone died with uh, 15 cents to their name and the family can't afford services, they would, they could go to the Department of Social Services, like a local facility, and apply for welfare pretty much and um, just to get a little extra assistance. And they will help. But I do know that, um, and this is just something I learned last week, mind you, um, if you if you apply for, or if you go to the Department of Social Services and you apply, but they see that you posted a GoFundMe online, they will deny the application immediately. Oh, really? Yep. And I'm not part of the Department of Social Services, so I don't know the 
ins and outs of that, but I do know that if you apply for help, you can't set up a GoFundMe asking for help. Like you have to rely, pretty much trust that social services is going to help with that. Which I mean, it it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Just I have a I have a friend who died, and well, she killed herself, oh. and her family paid for the funeral, mm-hmm. and. Her husband, like, he had, it was a whole thing. He had left her, and he, because of the state they lived in, he knew that she had bought a gun because they have to notify the spouse. Like, he had moved out and left her and was trying to get her to, like, move back home, and she wasn't doing it, and he was notified that she bought a gun, and he didn't tell any of us. Like, none of us knew what was happening until she killed herself, and her family paid for the funeral, Mm -hmm. Um, but he started a GoFundMe for funeral expenses. That's how awful of a person he is where it's like, well, first of all, she's dead because of you. Like you're not responsible for her actions, but you could have let her friends and family know that she had purchased a firearm because like she had moved to his home state. So like all of us out here, we had no idea. Like we would have gotten on a plane, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And been like, all right, girl. We're bringing you home. Um, And so, like, in that way, he is at fault through gross negligence. And then he started a GoFundMe saying he needed the money for funeral expenses. And I was livid because it's like, at this point, you're actually just using a person's death as a money-making scheme. You don't actually need money for burial. Um, But I could see how that might really fuck a family over if they we're going through the application process for support from social services. And in the meantime, started to go fund me because they don't know. And then all of a sudden their uh, application is denied and they had no idea that that would, you know what I mean? That would be very unfortunate for the oh, family. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, um, I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. Unfortunately. Um, Death can really bring the vultures out of the woodwork sometimes. Um, like, for example, my grandma, she um, when she passed last year, and I also think this is one of those examples of why it's so important to communicate with family members about what you want and maybe even set up or put it in writing somewhere. Um, so she had told me that... Um, she was putting my brother and I in the will and that we could have the house and any access to what we wanted, including any belongings. And I was there when she signed the will. And after she died, I got a copy of it and I noticed that the will had been changed three days prior to her death. No. And, you know, I can see her shaky little signature at the bottom and I'm like, who knows what they even told her she was signing. Basically, yeah. basically, the pastor at her church had written himself in as the sole executor. So after she died, him and other people from the church swooped in and pillaged the house. Like I know some of my grandfather's guns got taken because they wasted no time getting what they could to pawn it off. Like, it's just sickening what people will... Disgusting. It's sickening what people will... um, Or how far the left will their greed take them. Yeah. Yeah. Alleged religious people. That's so horrible. Yeah. 
Ugh, yuck. And I, um, I remember I had, I had gone to the, eventually gone to the house to get some stuff she wanted me to have. So while I was there, the executor was kind of following me around, breathing down my neck and making, and he would say like, no, you can't take that. And I would say, why not? And he would say, that's an antique. And I was like, oh, this is my late dad's. Did you, were you able to take it? Yes. So I. Oh, thank God. But it it was just stuff like that. Absolutely disgusting. Oh my God. Yeah. And your, your heart is broken because you've lost someone and then they're going to do that to you. Right. And try to keep you from having your own family heirlooms. What is this? What disgusting, horrible people. Yeah. Luckily. And I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but, um. No, go. Just last week, I was in the area. So she lived in Pennsylvania, and I was in the area um, for my cousin's baseball game. And I was going on, like, you know, it's it's fall. I want to see the fall foliage, so I'm going down a little countryside road that was adjacent to where she lived. And from there, I could still see the house. So beforehand, I had seen that, you know, I... We were told that the house was sold already, but, you know, they wasted no time putting it on the market. And it was weird because when in the past couple times I had seen it, it looked dilapidated, which was just heart-wrenching to see. But, Heartbreaking. Um, but while I was driving, I saw that there was a car in the driveway. So after a lot of thought, I decided to run to the market and I grabbed a gallon of cider and I went went up to the door with the cider and also a picture of my grandma in hand, knocked on the door, and this woman answered. And, you know, I introduced myself, and and mind you, I was prepared for anything. I was like, I might get the door slammed. I know I might get the door slammed in my face or something like that, but she was super nice, and she said she'd been hoping to meet someone from the family at some point, so she invited me in. And... Like I said, the executor had more or less kind of hurried me, which I hated because I was like, this is already a really emotional day and you're acting like you have better places to be and not really giving me the space to like process all this. But yeah, but just so I, I was able to get like stuff that I could fit in my car, but I wasn't able to really go through everything in depth because also my grandma never threw anything away, but um. As it turns out, just last week, literally just last week, the new owner of the house had gone through this big cedar chest we had, and in the chest were some trophies that my dad had won, some letters from my great-grandparents, some pictures of my grandma, and I was so glad that I came to see her and to meet the owner and that I took it all home with me because... Uh, it's just mind-boggling to think that that could have all just been discarded. So I'm really thankful for that experience. That is incredible. First of all, you are so Thank brave you. for doing that. Thank you. And second of all, I can't believe the church sold the house with everything in it and that the new owners hadn't gotten rid of it. Like, thank God they hadn't because... Right. And thank God they were good people and they knew that those would be family heirlooms and they kept them because 
I mean, not everybody would think that way. You know, they'd just be like, oh, well, if the family wanted them, they would have gotten them, and clearly they left it behind, so no one, this doesn't mean anything to anyone. Right. So that is, that is amazing. Um, hopefully you maybe exchange some information so you have, like, a line of communication with those owners because, I mean, if there's still stuff in there that you want, I mean. Oh, I did. I did. I, um, I wrote on my. Oh, good. I wrote on my number, and I, I even said, you know, if you find anything else, please let me know. But um, it really was the best-case scenario that I could have possibly asked for because. Yeah. Also, it's rural Pennsylvania, so I was thinking, like, okay, I might get an angry guy with a gun at the door, but um, I was just, it. I don't think I could have asked it to pan out any better. Yeah, that is spectacular. Um, I guess to wrap things up, is there anything about the funeral industry that you... Um, that you think people should know or any interesting things that you've encountered um, thus far? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think um, I definitely want to let people know that, um, you know, of course, it's our job to be their rock during a very fragile and vulnerable time. So we do have to sometimes, I mean, we're not, or at least I, I don't want to be like, I would never want to be cold or unfeeling, but I do have to put some distance between myself and the situation. But later on, like you best believe that during some especially difficult cases, I go home and cry. Like we definitely feel for the family and what they're going through. So, um, I, uh, (laughs) I also feel like sometimes when I tell people I'm a funeral director in training, they're picturing Lurch Adams, but, <laughs> but I genuinely want to help people in the time of grief, especially being well acquainted with grief myself. Um, but I, uh, I guess my point is we cry too, like at, at the end of a services, at the end of services sometimes, like it'll really take an emotional toll on us. So, um, it's definitely important that funeral directors take care of their own mental health, um, especially after cases involving children or babies. Or th- those are always hard. Oh, so this is something I was going to ask yeah. you. Um, I know in medical professions, they have, especially like emergency services and stuff, they have really high rates of alcoholism, mental health, mm-hmm. suicide, because it's just, though you're dealing with stuff that normal people don't have to deal mm-hmm. with. Like, God, if I had a nickel for every fucking person <laughs> whose neck I wanted to ring because they were throwing a temper tantrum because they got a flat tire. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm like, if that is the most horrific thing to happen to you this month is you got a flat tire, you are doing so fucking Yeah, awesome. <laughs> right. Um, because people like you are dealing with the darker side of life and humanity on a daily basis. Um, degloved is the word that I was looking yeah. for 40 minutes ago about when the skin is peeled off. Um, yeah, like most people aren't seeing um, a degloved limb <laughs> right. on a regular basis. <laughs> so is that something that they talk about in school, um, the mental processing and how to protect yourself and deal with it um, when you're going into this career? Um, 
I do know that, um, like you said, some may turn to alcoholism. Like I do know some funeral, not personally, but I have been told some funeral directors drink to cope with what they see. Um, I think you, as a person, um, it's kind of just about, um, if you're self-aware enough to know like, oh, this works or, oh, this doesn't, you kind of find your own coping mechanisms. Um, like I said, I, um, and also I would never, ever say anything in front of grieving family members, but when I'm at work and, and like you said, we see so much trauma and grief and violence that if I didn't have some levity, I would go crazy, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> like, um, especially during some of the grosser st- stuff, like, um, I, I did have, a an experience where, and I think this was actually my first removal, to be honest, or, or my first house call. So my first house call was a gentleman who was on, I think the eighth floor and of, of an apartment building. And it was also in the middle of the summer and he hadn't been found in three days. And, and like I said, this was my first one. I did not know what I was going into, but so I'm there with the coroner, I'm there with my colleague, and we're trying to get him into a body bag so then we can then put the body bag onto the stretcher. And luckily I was wearing a pair of gloves, but I remember I picked this guy, you know, we're like, all right, ready? One, two, three. And when I picked this guy up by his ankles, I saw something like kind of fall on the side of his leg and I realized that part of his skin had slipped off in my hand. So, um, that, that'll break you in if that's your first, uh, body retrieval, (laughs) that'll really break you in. Oh my gosh. I mean, I did say to them, like, if anything is going to send me running, screaming for the hills, I might as well find out now. (laughs) But, um, I, uh, it almost kind of requires improv skills. Um, cause if you're able to just like I said, if you can't laugh it off, then you're, you don't stand a chance. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to have that uh, as a coping mechanism. Um, I clean up a lot of poo-poo and vomit oh. um, at working at a bar. And so I always, every time I have to do it, I just take a selfie <laughs> in front of the bathroom mirror at work with the gloves and the cleaner. Yeah. And I put it on my Instagram stories with like a little joke about it because I'm like, it is not my favorite mm-hmm. thing to do, but like, it, like much like bodies need to be taken care of um, after a person has passed away. Like the poo poo has to get off the toilet seat, the puke has to get out of the urinal. Like somebody's gonna have to do it, and so you're gonna, what like what is it called? Like battlefield humor. Like you just have to have it because, yeah. like, and I'm sure every body you encounter is different in some sort of way. That is, you have to. It's a, it's a new case every time and there's going to be ones that are yuckier than others. And it always, um, it's always interesting to me when friends say like, I could never do what you do. I mean, I know where they're coming from, but also I know there's jobs out there that I could never do, which might sound mm-hmm. funny because, you know, I'm literally seeing someone's inside sometimes, but I know I couldn't be an accountant or a teacher. And I actually give you a lot of credit because, um, and decedents do poop themselves, so I see that sometimes. But um, 
Oh, yeah. Poop, I'm okay with. Vomit, no. Absolutely not. So I definitely dread the day where I have to go get a body that, um, and they have thrown up on themselves. It's because I do not do well with vomit. Well, yeah, vomit's a very special thing because it's, it's, it's like snowflakes. Every vomit is different <laughs> depending <laughs> on what they ate and how warm it is when you're still <laughs> handling it. Yeah. Um, but I would think for the most part, you wouldn't have to deal with that because like if especially if they're passing in a care facility, that's going to be handled. Right. My mom's um, ex-boyfriend, he they well, I mean, they're both nurses, but he was telling me, you know, sometimes when people pass away and they, they're moving the body out of the room, he's like, sometimes they just they just keep shitting. And he's like, so you, sh- you shove one of their socks up their ass is what he said the nurses would do. He's like, yeah, you just shove the sock up their oh ass. Otherwise, God. they're going to keep shitting. And I was like, for real? And then they just get to the funeral home and there's just like a sock. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it does, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but I choose to believe it's true because he said it. Um, some might. I know our... <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, like I said, decedents do shit themselves. But um, I, I know some funerals will plug them up with kind of like a... yeah. I know that we almost never do that unless it's a dire situation, um, like where there's just no hope otherwise. Um, I personally give them what I call the dead man's enema. I just use the hose and um, <laughs> turn it on full blast <laughs> but um, and just kind of clean that area. But it just feels so dehumanizing to shove something up their ass. I, no. Yeah, to then put a cork in their right. butt. Um, unless that's what they liked. Yeah. That was part of their um, <laughs> their plan. That was part of their prearrangements was like, oh, I'm going to need like, you to put a cork uh, in there. No, I'm into this. Um, I'm into this. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I know friends who would be really excited at that prospect. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, wait. What else, what else do we need to know about... Um, about uh sorry i'm i think i just my brain clocked no it's okay what else do we need to know before before we end so um just to get a full uh, scope of what it is like being a funeral director and dealing with the deceased and their families it's definitely also given me a new appreciation for what which i know sounds so cliche But just yesterday, I mean, I was getting back from grocery shopping and especially just, I was, for whatever reason, I was thinking about, um, you know, I was pulling out of the grocery store parking lot and just out of the blue, I thought, what if a semi pulled up and missed the stop sign and hit me? Like It would be over with. Like, I would just have chocolate checks in the backseat that I never took home. Like, it's definitely given me... um, I mean, I knew before that life is finite and I myself, obviously I don't want to die right now, but I, I'm not afraid of it. Um, I definitely think that there's this weird, um, paradox between, you know, a, a lot of Americans are afraid to even say the word died or death, like they like to use the euphemisms like passed away or went to be with the Lord. And yet there's this um, 
sometimes morbid fascination. Like we don't, we want to see just a glimpse of it, but we don't want to get too close because I think some people have, and I want to say irrational, but I also understand it. Like I think some people are afraid that death is contagious Hence why we might... That's um, a good point. Yeah. Like, hence why we might be uncomfortable supporting a grieving friend. Because um, there might... Even subconsciously, we might think, I don't want to spend too much time around them. Like, what if I'm next? Or something like that. Like, what if it throws a wrench into the natural order of life? So, I think it's just important to know that... Or I know Caitlin Doty likes to say that. Um, she's she's like, remember, we're all gonna die, and she says it in like such a cute and funny way. But um, I uh, I think because of that, it's just important to try to establish an open line of communication with your loved ones about like what do you want or this is what I want. I think that's a really good point. Uh, I in our country we definitely have a, a good sense of detachment around a lot of things, right? Like we don't even take care of our dying loved ones. We put them in hospice. Right. Um, we don't we don't kill our own animals for meat. It happens somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll never forget during the campaign when Sarah Palin was uh, the vice presidential candidate and people were like, oh my God, she's horrible. She's a hunter. And I'm like, that's literally <laughs> like the least offensive thing about her. Um, if you buy meat, then you shouldn't be upset at the concept of hunting. Right. Hunting's like, a lot more humane than factory farming. Like we don't understand like, coal that's being burned for energy because you know in countries like China where you're doing it in your own home you have a different concept of it versus for us it's happening elsewhere and so we just plug our you know something into a socket and it works and we don't think about where is this what non-renewable resource is this energy coming from we don't think about like what animal is this meat coming from or like we die and and people as someone who like i'm very health focused um and i'm going to school to be a pilates instructor because i just want to help people yeah it's very exciting for me i've been poisoning people for 20 (laughs) years and ready to do the other but people think about sickness and aging almost in the abstract and like you see it a lot as a bartender people drink and they smoke and they're like I'm here for a good time not a long time or whatever and I'm like well you aren't thinking about in between youth and vitality and death that there's this stage of sickness and pain and you know having gone through what I went through health-wise with that my endometriosis oh. and like being on the brink of disability and stuff. Oh my God. I value, like feel, I value health so much more in a way that other people don't. And so like I did Pilates throughout my sickness, but when I was sick, it was like, oh, I was throwing up in my mouth through my whole workout oh. and I would cry the whole way home because the pain was so bad and I'd have to lay down for two hours before I would have the strength to get up and shower. And so like coming out the other end of it and now things are just hard in the normal way of being hard. And to me, that is like 
a point to like celebrate. And so I just like, I really like to encourage people like you need to, every morning you wake up and you have like the ability to move around and like you should you should take joy in it and not go like oh I hate working out be like it's a blessing to be able to work out like I'm doing something that is going to help maintain my mobility and well-being in the age because people just I think and if they haven't had a breath like if you've always been able to walk you don't appreciate walking but if you had an injury um like Paris who's been on the pod who was in a wheelchair for two years to her being a dancer has like a whole new meaning and um it'd be great if people could appreciate you know health without having to experience extreme sickness or they could appreciate life without having to have like a brush with death you know what I mean and just death is going to come for it we all die Mm -hmm. and just be aware of that that's a very real thing that's going to happen and in the meantime, you should really celebrate things. Um, I don't know. My friend who, uh, who the one who killed herself, she used to always end every phone call with I love mm-hmm. you. And, like, it was the first time I ever had a friend, like a non-romantic relationship, like a friendship where someone's like, I love you. And she had told me, she's like, I think it's important to tell people. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so for you, you know, you're seeing death is a reality to you and you're dealing with the reality of it. So you have a perspective that I think it's, it's valuable to share, be able to share with people. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, you're alive. That's fucking awesome. I am. I definitely think the, um, you know, we started out with, like you said, um, taking care of our own. And then when we moved away from that, we, kind of sensitized ourselves rather than desensitizing ourselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, we became so accustomed to letting someone else handle it that when death was eventually reintroduced, if you will, it looked a lot scarier because people were just like, what is that? Like, oh, that's so grotesque and ugly when... And yucky. Yeah. Um, now that I've been working in the industry, even just for a short time now, though, but um, now that I've seen both sides of it, it's also given me a new understanding of what happens to us after we die. So um, I, I did just have um, a friend pass away recently um, from cancer, but I, I couldn't help but think, you know, when I learned of it that morning, I was thinking like, okay, they're going to pick him up. He's going to be put in a cooler for a little bit. I think we're going to have a viewing, so this is what they're going to do to him. And I, uh, But I also feel like my school experience has given me a little bit of backbone, if that makes any sense. Like, I, uh, learning about or learning to deal with others' grief has also taught me how do I deal with my own emotions when I'm going through a situation like this? How can I apply the knowledge that I've picked up? So it's really been an eye-opening experience. That is very interesting that you, while training in this industry, went through a loss, which I'm so sorry to hear that because I assumed that your friend was probably too young to, to go. Um, and so then you're like, you're on both ends of it. You're like, oh, I'm now 
on the 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 grieving family side. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's so wild. Do you think that it did make dealing with their death easier for you or just made you have a different perspective on it? I think it definitely just gave maybe a little bit of both if that makes any sense. Um mm-hmm. like I uh I it helped me remember okay, any reaction to, that I have to this is not necessarily wrong. Like, um, reactions to death are so complex and they vary from person to person. So you c- really can't expect one person to grieve exactly the same as another. So it kind of helped me remember, like, okay, let me just... Um, this is a good reminder for me to be gentle with myself and pay attention to what I'm feeling. I know it all sounds very granola-y, but. But I mean, it is important because I think people get real judgy and they'll be like, well, she didn't seem that sad or, you know, like he wasn't crying at his wife's funeral. He probably killed her. And it's like, well, everyone, like you said, they grieve differently and process it. And some people are able to feel all of that emotion right away. And other people, it like, is like a slow burn. Like it takes a while to become real and they feel things more slowly over time. Like it's just, everyone has a different way of dealing. There's not a right way to grieve, which some people think there is. That's also why, I'm sorry. That's also why it drives me absolutely insane. And actually, I feel like this is a pretty good um, closing point to make. It drives me insane when someone is going through a loss of any kind and someone says, oh, I know exactly how you feel. Like my cousin died last year or something like that, Um, which I know that's well-meaning. You know, they don't want the person to feel Mm -hmm. alone. They're trying to establish some common ground but even if it was the same type of kinship like for example um they both lost their mom like their relationships with their moms might have varied so then there might have been a different grief reaction so we really don't know how others feel and I um like I said there's a lot of phrases out there that mean well you know we want to comfort the person because we really are uncomfortable with seeing other people in pain. So that's understandable. Mm-hmm. But really the best thing to do is not say stuff like they're in a better place or um, time heals all wounds. I know how you feel, stuff like that. It's mostly just about being like, or even if you just want to say, I don't know what to say because death is awkward. Um, yeah. Just make it clear that um you can see your heart goes out to them I don't know yeah like um I guess try to be a comforting presence without necessarily trying to fix it just acknowledge even if it means acknowledging like wow this is really hard like can I drop off dinner tomorrow night or how are you feeling today stuff like that yeah I think that is a, a great point to make um, because the statements of trying to assign your feelings to another person can leave them to be hurt mm-hmm. and also trying to fix something in someone that 
at, at the time sometimes just feels like it's broken. Like I'm broken. I'm going to be broken forever. And, and trying to fix them is like almost, I don't know. It's, it's hurtful in a way, even though it's well-meaning. And so, yeah, I think just letting someone know, you know, I'm, I, I am so sorry. I'm sorry. This is happening mm -hmm. to you. And like, I, there's always the vague statements of like, what can I do? Right. But I think you are very wise in the statement of, can I drop off dinner? Um, which, you know, I learned through like a chronically ill forum. Like somebody posted this thing of like things that you can say to your chronically ill friend mm -hmm. rather than let me know if you need anything. Say, do you need me to come over and do help with your laundry? Do you need yeah. me to drop off food? Like, and give specific things that they can say yes or no to, mm -hmm. which is a lot easier than someone blindly reaching out for help. Cause no one likes reaching out for help. And sometimes no. it's like when you're hurting that bad, you don't really know what you need. Right. <laughs> like, so it's like, let me know if you need anything. And you're like, I don't know what I need. My whole world just fell apart. Exactly. Like, I, don't, I don't know. Exactly. So that that is great advice. Yeah, it's just um, about um, validating that they're in a lot of pain and um, not trying to gloss over it or paint it to be, or paint a brighter picture when really it's the darkest day of their life. Yeah. I would love to do an update with you maybe yeah. like in a year, maybe so next October, because I would like to hear an update on how things are going for you um, career wise and um, like perspective wise, because I'm sure like you're just learning and experiencing so much like a year from now. And, and also like, listen, I'm going to be honest, I want to check, check in and make sure you're doing okay <laughs> and that your work isn't getting to you um because I, I know like <laughs> well yeah I just one of my best friends is a paramedic and like it's one of those things where I just I'm like yeah I I just want to make sure that you're doing okay as a person and and have the right coping mechanisms in place and um and also tell me your tails yeah <laughs> you know what I mean absolutely T tell me about the skin falling off in your hand <laughs> I am um, in a perfect world. I'll be, I'll have my degree by this upcoming summer. Um, I'm taking 20 credit hours right now. God help me. But Holy shit. Yeah. It, it can be a lot. Fuck. But, um, yeah, I like to think I'm managing pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it definitely helps that, um, and you know, there's a time and a place for everything, but when I'm not, helping a grieving family or um, cutting someone open. I like to think, and I've also been told that I have a very sunny, sometimes very goofy personality, which I feel like can help me manage any hardship. So I do feel pretty confident in my ability to handle the um, some of the grittier aspects of the industry, which doesn't mean I won't have my rough days. I definitely will, but I definitely look forward to checking in. Hell yeah. All right. Well, um, you want to tell people to have a happy hump day? Have a happy hump day, people, and happy Halloween. <laughs>